My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. There was some brilliant news this week from Air New Zealand. Did you catch it? They're going to phase out a bunch of single-use plastic items from all of their flights. I was just so pleased to read that. But I also found out that Virgin Australia did a similar thing earlier this year and I'd missed it. But they're also saying no more of those plastic, you know, those stirrers, those pathetic, pointless sticks that they give you for no reason in your drinks and your tea. To which I say, hurrah. The plastics conversation is really moving along. In fact, another bit of excellent news I loved. Did you see what the 2018 word of the year from the Collins Dictionary was? Yeah, it was single use. (laughs) There's so much attention now being thrown at this, which I absolutely love because that's how we change policy. Now that we know that the oceans are choking with plastic, disposable has become a kind of dirty word. It's like something you don't want to be associated with. We also know that there is no away. Nothing that uses synthetic materials is really disposable. It has to go somewhere. So that whole idea of out of sight, out of mind, it's a total cop-out. All right, but what about so-called disposable fashion? Well, I hate it saying that. Yuck, right? Single-use fashion is perhaps a stretch, but disposable fashion, we are absolutely there. Clothing usability is declining. And the stats vary, but I've got some here from my friends at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So they say, the average number of times a garment is worn before it ceases to be used has decreased by 36% compared to 15 years ago. In the US, for example, clothes are worn only for around a quarter of the global average, but the same pattern is emerging elsewhere. In China, clothing utilisation has decreased by 70% over the last 15 years. And don't think Aussies are any better. I'm sure many listeners are aware of the often quoted fact on this podcast, and I never get tired of saying it because we need to remember. Australians dispatch 6,000 kilos of clothing and textiles to landfill every 10 minutes. I mean, what are we doing? It's completely crazy. 
A bit more from Ellen MacArthur. Clothing production has pretty much doubled during the last 15 years, so between 2000 and 2015. We're now producing around 100 billion garments globally every year. And, wait for it, this is a bad one, of the total fibre input used for all that clothing. Just guess. Guess how much of it ends up landfilled or incinerated. It is 87%. I mean, oh, oh my God. There's one word for that, and that word is bonkers. Now, this week's guest is a waste warrior. She is Christina Dean from the Hong Kong-based sustainable fashion consultancy Redress. We recorded this interview when I went to visit them a couple of months ago as one of the judges for the Redress Award for Best Emerging Sustainable Fashion Designer. And actually, the winner was an Aussie, which was a bit lovely. Tess Whitford, shout out to you. We talk a bit about that and also how the next generation of designers is shaking things up. But mostly, we talk about bins. We talk about clothing waste and what Christina has discovered during the course of her extraordinary journey, which includes for 365 days wearing only clothes she'd rescued from the bin. So this episode is about decoding the psychology behind all that. Why are we buying these clothes to throw them away? How can we change culture in order to capture those resources and stop being so damn wasteful? What are the ramifications of our fashion waste problem and who's doing what to try to fix it? As always, dear listener, thank you for lending me your ears. Also, if you're in Europe, next week I'll be in Amsterdam to launch my new book, Rise and Resist, at the Fashion for Good Museum. After that, I'll be in London for a fashion open studio event with the Mayak Collective at the Conduit Club. And for that one, I'll be in conversation with the wonderful Tamsin Blanchard, all about fashion activism, fashion revolution, and how we can change the world. If you can't join us, please do follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press for all the news. And let me know who you think I should track down in London and record an interview with for next series. But now let's hear from Christina. Okay, so I mentioned some Australian stats before, but globally, just how bad is the textile and clothing waste picture? And can you tell us some data around the world, but also in Hong Kong, where you're based? Well, I mean, first of all, there's no absolute global figure that we know is 100% correct, but it's estimated that 92 million tonnes of textiles are wasted every single year. 92 million tonnes. You've just got to rest on that for a moment because it's very, very shocking. In Hong Kong, uh, we have 343 tonnes of textile waste every day in our landfills. I feel like when we talk about the figures, I can commit them to memory, but I find it really hard to envisage them. What does it look like? Mm. What do you see? Because at Redress, you actually see this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, we're lucky or unlucky that we have exposure to a lot of this waste with our own eyes. So I've had um, the visceral experience of being around a lot of clothing waste. So I've been in warehouses, you know, as big as hangers full of clothes that have been chucked away. And that's not just in Hong Kong. I've seen that in London and other Mm. places around the world. I've also been into warehouses belonging to brands with the most phenomenal amount of end of roll industry waste. Um, And I've seen a lot of, lot of boxes of um, clothing waste. A lot of brands might buy 20,000 yards, let's just say, of rolls with pink spots on them but some of the pinks are not quite the same pink so they can't do the entire collection out of that one fabric type so they would call those damaged textiles Mm. but of course they're not actually damaged Mm. they're just not the same as the rest of them so end of rolls damaged surplus cut and sew waste that's when you cut out the, the pattern of the clothes and then 
the fabric that drops to the floor is called cut and sew waste. What do you do at Redress? We work to reduce waste in the fashion industry across the supply chain. So if we're working with a brand, we might work with them on a recycling their dead stock, or we might work with them on putting a container in their stores where we collect their clothes, mm. or we might educate their staff and their designers and their buyers around how to buy and sell clothes more. When you get that stuff though, what do you do with it? So I know that you've collected from brands like Zara, for example. You collect those donated unwanted goods. Mm -hmm. What do you do with them? We sort them out very diligently by hand, which is difficult, and by eyesight. And we, we work out the best next use for them. So that means that we might give them to different charities for them to sell on. We might work with designers to upcycle them, which is like to give them new life. Or as we go down in the pecking order, when we come to the really bad quality stuff, which inevitably we do get the mm -hmm. really bad quality, we then work with a recycler who takes the really bad stuff that we can't salvage at all and they are chopped up into small pieces and then they are spun back into a yarn. So mechanical recycling, if you recycle mechanically, what you're doing is tearing up the fibres mm -hmm. and literally ripping them apart but mm -hmm. with a machine mm -hmm. so they can then be respun. Mm -hmm. actually makes it into a poorer quality fibre, unfortunately, and right? that is the problem that we have, exactly. Last year, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation released a report called A New Textiles Economy, Redesigning Fashion's Future, and it was all about how we need to radically improve recycling and longevity and durability of design. But it highlighted the fact that less than 1% of discarded clothing is currently recycled into new fibre. I mean, it's nothing. It's less than 1%. We're just not doing it yet. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, a pi it's piecemeal. It's not even piecemeal. It's absolutely pathetic. <laughs> and the reason for that, quite honestly, yeah. is because the entire infrastructure needs to completely change so that we can capture all of these old clothes, find a decent way to recycle them, find a good way to spin them, and find a good way to put them back into the market. I mean, it's really inefficient what we're doing at the moment. When you talk about going through the waste and mm. saying this could be repurposed and resold, I mean, that's great, but that's not an efficient process, is it? And then the bits that are not good enough for on sale, you now have this facility. Talk us through what's happening here in Hong Kong. Well, um, the Hong Kong Research Institute for Textile and Apparel have um, just opened a mill here in Hong Kong where they can take post-consumer waste of all different fibres, like all of our clothes are mixed with lots of different fibres, and they can use um, hydrothermal recycling. And what is it? Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a techie process. <laughs> um, but essentially it's applying technology to extract and save and recycle different fibres. The million dollar question, the million dollar need, is to scale up the tech that can separate cotton from polyester. We need governments and we need businesses to come together to put the infrastructure in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're listening to this and you're thinking, how do I do it? There's a lot of frustration and overwhelm that comes with knowing those stats, knowing about this gargantuan waste problem, but then not knowing what to do. What can we do? Well, I think everyday people need to just take stock of their relationship with their clothes. The solution is to become much more passionate about fashion and absolutely to love it. And essentially what that fundamentally really means, to me at least, is to buy better clothes that you absolutely love and to wear them for much, much longer, learn how to style them, have fun with them, repair them, swap them, and just keep them in use for as long as possible. Before, you might want to pass them on, and when you do want to pass them on, swap them or put them in for recycling, but never, ever, ever put them into the landfill. 
fashion's got to find its heart again. You know, bring technology, bring the supply chain, bring the manufacturers, bring the designers, collaborate. I know that's difficult, but that for me is finding it's the real essence of fashion is around creativity. Okay, so we've talked about creativity. We talked about ways a bit because we talked about governments and stakeholders creating facilities to take on recycling and waste. But what else do you think we need to really try to transition to fashion being circular? Well, I think we all need um, a mirror. <laughs> and we need to actually look at ourselves as a, as a global community. That's way too big. It's a, as a citizen of today. I like the word community. I think that it's disassociation from community that allows us to be so thoughtless about this stuff. I do agree with you, but the expert, I mean, we are an enormous world and to feel one community is, you know, a little bit okay. far-fetched in my view. But I like the idea of being a fashion citizen, and that is being fair, kind, sensitive and honourable with your clothes. And really think about, for me, again, I'm, I'm desperately moved around these people who actually get very badly hurt in the supply chain. And to think, well, why do I want to cause that? And so that's why I say become a fashion mm -hmm. citizen is actually a very ethical, personal, honourable pursuit. And mm -hmm. it's actually a very beautiful pursuit. Those are beautiful words that I think perhaps they've fallen from fashion, but they're on the way back. You know, we often talk about dignity in this conversation, about garment workers having dignity and using that word in the fashion sense. It seems kind of antithetical, right? But, but why not? Why not do things that are honourable? Why would you want to do the opposite? Oh, I think honour is the best form of living. I just haven't even had a conversation about honour before, so I love that no. we are. No, but it's, it's good. Fashion does intersect with all this stuff. It's how we express ourselves. It's how we relate to one another. It makes sense. And yet we tend to just think it's just how you look. It's just surface, right? I think since I've become a more hardened eco-fashionista or if you, whatever you want to call me, I feel that I look much better because I feel so much better. Mm. Yeah. Back onto waste. What else do we need to do to try and fix this stuff? And I'm talking about the personal. Like if we were to go into our own wardrobes, our own lives, mm. how can we try and adapt some of this stuff into making our own experience more circular, if you like? I think um, the first thing I would really do on a very practical level is do a closet edit. Very practical. Google it, you know, check out how to do a closet edit. Basically remove all of your clothes, sort out what you do wear and what you don't wear and look at your don't wear part and try and work out why you're not wearing it and give yourself maybe three months not to shop and go through your own closet. Or, or give yourself 365 days. Or, <laughs> <laughs> so I am into trash and rubbish. And um, I was rather radical because I did for 365 days, I wore other people's thrown away clothes because I wanted to really understand why do people throw all their clothes away? So I actually packed my own wardrobe away. And oh, I was, so you wouldn't be tempted? Did you actually hide it? Oh, no, I just had to get rid of it because I needed space in my, in my new wardrobe. For so everyone else's car stops. Yeah. All their old filthy clothes. And I used to go to this enormous warehouse and collect clothes that the Hong Kong public had chucked away. And it gave me real insight into why, I could only imagine, why did they throw these clothes away? Because I was in ballrooms, boardrooms, I was skiing, I was on the beach, I was at big parties, I was with the kids. And, and you I can actually, get all of it. Oh, a lot better stuff in the bin than even I had beforehand and I had actually used to have some quite expensive designer kit and I got better stuff out of the bin sometimes. When you say bin? Mega recycling centres but think filthy, rammed, dark, mosquitoes and think as far as you can see. So not the like 
delightful thrift experience that I think the fashionista <laughs> enjoys. No, 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 no. no. And Don't horrible know. things, right? But also good oh, things. Oh, I've seen everything, yeah. But sometimes, yeah, I mean, you open a bag and you could find a Prada or you could find a tampon. You know, it's, it's really a mixed bag, literally. So it was quite an overwhelming experience going to, into this warehouse to find my clothes. I became obsessed with taking clothes out of the bin that were filthy. I knew you were a rubbish obsessed. <laughs> I would go in and say, right, well, I'm going to find the worst stains. And I would spend a long time just looking at sniff, like sniff tests and <laughs> looking up sweat and you name it. But the purpose of it was that I was going to wash it and prove that I can get those stains out. And I also found incredibly expensive clothes with dry cleaning labels on them. Mm -hmm. I took them back home and I used bicarb on them and I got them out. And within honestly an hour of a little elbow grease, these dresses were perfect again. I, yeah, it so. just comes back to that whole idea of how can we change because we've got this idea that if something's a little bit inconvenient, oh, there's some tomato on it, yeah. turf it out, right? Yeah, well, there's that, absolutely. Um, so I... I want to pick over all the stuff you found even more because it's quite voyeuristic and weird. What else do you find? Oh, I just found, you know, clothes with, you know, minor hem down, button off. Um, so I, tiny things. Like they're throwing oh. them away for nothing. Oh, well, no, there's many things that there's absolutely perfect, you know, obviously with hang tags still on them, brand new. I found lots of, obviously, vintage, but also fast fashion, lots of nameless brands, you know, brands that are, you know, Asian brands that you wouldn't know about, very low quality, some of them. You can buy whatever you want. Wedding dress? Need one? Got one in the bin? Married already. <laughs> Get married again. <laughs> From that process, you came up with 12 steps or tips. Yes. Like you did it for a kind of educational piece, it was. Yeah, yeah. Or did you? I mean, was it a well, personal it started, challenge? It what? started as a personal challenge because I spent a lot of time in landfills looking at the situation and just thinking, what on earth is going on here? And then it became a personal exploration where I just thought, I'm going to investigate. And then it snowballed into this incredible extravaganza of waste. And throughout that experience... Um, I learned to, I was like an investigative fashionista, really, to try and find out why. Mm. And throughout that... So why people throw things away? Yeah. And they throw things away for many different reasons. I mean, obviously, it doesn't fit, or they can't clean it, or they've damaged it in the wash, or they don't like it, or they can't style, they've got no imagination, no confidence, or they just don't know time, or they don't know where a tailor is. You know, <laughs> that was a lot of things. Yeah. Or they just simply don't value things because they have become so cheaply accessible. So in a way, it's more convenient and cheap to chuck it out and buy another one. People often go shopping and they're shopping for something completely different. So they come home with clothes that they didn't ever really want. And that just stuffs it into the wardrobe. You get a thrill for a moment. And then you're on to the next thing. Mm. So that is such a sadness, actually. When I'd go into the, to these warehouses, I feel so sad for the consumer for wrongly having spent their money and then had just chucked it out. But I have been there in those warehouses with designers and designers feel so overwhelmed because all their creativity, all yeah. their time, all their life, all those late nights, all the stress of the buttons and the trims and the arguing with this, 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 and then it's just chucked away. And that's just the designer, but let's remember that fashion has such a long supply chain. So yeah. somebody sewed it. Somebody cut it out, somebody made the cotton, somebody yeah. grew the cotton, somebody picked the cotton. Yeah. And somebody didn't have enough water to drink because it was all polluted. From that forensic kind of investigation into waste and trying to figure out why it ended up there, you came up with these 12 ideas, mm. right? What were they? Well, we condensed these uh, 12 themes that I explored, which would be sustainable consumer care, DIY, 
current trends. They were all sort of themes that I was looking for when I was going through the bin, so to speak. We condensed that down into a book, which was a practical guide to having a conscious closet that is separated into buy, wear, care and dispose. So that we could help people. If you want to go shopping, you can check out buy, how to wear clothes and how to care for them, how to dispose. Pass on, I suppose, perhaps is a better term. Um, I think we've discussed the idea of valuing your clothes. So just when you don't want them anymore, keep the value in them. And where can they go so that they continue to be worn in the fashion system? So for me, that means elevating their value for as long as humanly possible. So swap with a friend or you know, restyle it. I mean, I always think there's a lot of value in restyling. So not even repairing. It might actually not need it, but just wearing it in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, fashion is so creative. And it's actually down to you to be creative as the fashion wearer. And I think so many times you can get a bit wrongly misled by thinking by that me, goes with that. By me, as a fashion journalist, <laughs> saying, sorry, hammers have now dipped. <laughs> well, you know, sorry, it's an I'm attitude. It's, but fashion is an attitude. And there's so many different ways to style things. And it truly is actually how you feel that really projects how good you're actually going to look. That's what I've really discovered throughout my time living in a bin. But I also, you know... I'm going to call this bin woman. (laughs) You know, getting things repaired, getting them fitted again, altering them throughout DIY. I mean, DIY for me is... I'm a fan massively because you can take something that you think is really 80s, 90s or no style or it's way too big, do something to it. And by the way, I may be cheap, but for me, DIY doesn't actually mean you have to do it yourself. So I'm slightly cheating on that because I think it's perfectly fine to come up with a concept and give it to somebody else to sew because there's no point in DIYing if you can't sew. But the concept of DIY has completely changed so many outdated garments in my own wardrobe. But actually it's about getting those connections back that we used to have. So the people who are skilled to make alterations, the cobblers, the menders and makers... What are the lessons that you learnt? I know it was in 2013, but still I'm just fascinated by it, by your 365-day challenge. I learnt to love fashion more than I've ever loved it before because it is transformative and it's a beautiful industry and it does transform how you feel about yourself and about the world and, it, and about how also other people perceive you. And I think that is a very special thing to love about fashion. Where does this come from in you? Because you, when you were a kid, did you grow up in South Africa? Yes. And then, but also London? UK, yeah. Did your kind of eco-awakening, in inverted commas, if you like, happen through journalism later? Or were you a bit of a mindful kid? I was definitely brought up with kind of um, a very outdoor farm. You know, we were in the farms in South Africa and, you know, always out, outdoors in the UK. And I think I've always been... A, I, I'm definitely not a rebel because I'm actually quite a boring person. I don't know if all rebels are boring, <laughs> but I've been a little bit of a rebel in my own heart because I like to do things that I think is right, even if it is wrong to everybody else. And I think that's perhaps what has driven me somewhat. And I do... Well, maybe have you got a solid knowledge of what's wrong and right? Perhaps that's it. Yeah, I know how it feels. Like a moral compass. People yeah, do. Yeah, I do. I, f- I can tell if something's wrong. And if I feel wrong about something, it drives me very much. And I think it is wrong that people are dying of cancer because of polluted water, because of factories, because of people buying clothes like crazy. It's wrong. And it makes me tingle. And it makes me sad, actually, very deeply sad, because mm. I feel genuine pain around those poor people that have no voice to... You know, imagine if it was my kid with cancer. Mm. And who, honestly, gives a toss? Not enough people. Yeah. Well, too many people manage to not think about it. Yeah. You and I were both journalists. I still am one. Mm. Do you think you are one? 
Maybe you still are one. I am still a journalist in the way that I approach a problem, which is that I don't always want to believe what I'm first told. And I think being a journalist has allowed me to be chippy in this industry, to keep asking and hassling people. Chippy is a good word. Yeah, we're both chippy. (laughs) (laughs) I used to write about which flats you needed for spring. And you may still do that as long as they're sustainable flats. (laughs) What did you use to write about at the South China Morning Post? I wrote about lots of things, lots of things about the environment. But also, no, no, tell the truth. You did some spa stories. I know. How do you know that? I know everything. Yeah, I did travel and beauty. I did a really quite a big investigative piece on mainland prostitutes who move into Hong Kong. Oh, did you? Yeah, and the human rights of the did you? sex workers in Hong Kong. I did some tobacco taxation because I'm kind of quite into health. So I wrote quite a, a semi-political piece on the uh, Hong Kong government's taxation policy around cigarettes because... Interesting. Yeah. And then I've written about my sex life. I have, in one article was how to spend the whole weekend naked in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, good. But less funny (laughs) was when you started to write about the environment and I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about your reactions to China's pollution, for example. What, my personal... Yeah, because you started writing about the environment when you realised, okay... I just think it's wrong. I don't know what other words without some big F words. My reaction is that it's completely disgusting that in 150, 200 years, people look back and go, what were those effing imbeciles doing? Mm. You know, I look back and I look at, my husband's really into history and I'm a bit dim at history, but you know, he tells me about all these terrible things that happened in World War One, World War Two, and you look My at, husband does that. Yeah. My husband says it's just cyclical. Don't get so worried about it. Human nature's always been like that. There's always been wars. Look at Genghis Khan. Yeah, no, but... You go, what? But, 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 but you also still want to change the world. What do you mean, no, look no, at no, Genghis no. Khan? But we are still <laughs> barbaric. Right. I think we are barbaric by allowing this to happen. And in 200 years, they'll say, what were those idiots doing, buggering up the planet? But then they'll just do it again. No, no, we need some hope. (laughs) No, I don't know. That's what I mean. The the, the need is to get on with it because I'm ashamed. I'm super ashamed that we are the stewards of the earth right now. We know that the problems are out there. And yes, of course, there are many people trying to do something about it, but it doesn't take rocket effing science. You're angry. I am angry. Because we can find solutions to this. And also, I do think we have a right to be angry. I think that then we need to learn, we, you know, I don't mean that to sound preachy, mm-hmm. but I, talking about myself, need to learn when to set that aside and then to be, you know, action. Because anger doesn't breed action. But I do feel frustrated too. Mm. When I write about climate, yeah. I get very frustrated. and think, what are we doing? I guess the, the reason I'm angry really is because I've been talking about this for 10 years and now it's mainstream and I'm really excited about that. And in, 10 years ago, I didn't know what I know now. The point is, we know it. The cat's now out of the bag. We We've got the data. We know that what's going on and everyone's going to start talking about it. So let's just get on with it. Christina, I was so interested to be here at the judging of the Redress Design Awards in Hong Kong and to see the 11 finalists. It's actually amazing. Like, hello. They did amazing things. It was breathtaking. Beautiful, but with so much essence and heart and genuine conviction and determination. We're only taking 11 finalists and we get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications. But what we're really trying to test is their sustainable design techniques and their understanding of the circular 
fashion system. And we really deeply get to interrogate them somewhat when we actually meet them in Hong Kong. And it's pretty rigorous. I mean, you're actually, as a judge, I was interested to see how rigorous the categories are because you're actually talking about how much has this candidate designed for sustainability of fabrications? How cleverly have they adapted those ideas to the finished product? It's quite specific. It's pretty tough. It's very tough, and particularly for audiences, because they watch the show and they go, oh. I was dying a bit about that, because I think that while everyone did beautiful work, some things looked more beautiful on the runway, but they didn't necessarily get ranked as highly. And you wouldn't notice by looking, yeah, but no, we I know, because we're I'm, like, well, you didn't figure out where that, was, that particular fibre was going to end up, or you didn't know about how we produce... I don't know, polyester. Exactly. Well, I mean, I, I'm always mobbed on the runway by um, people. Why didn't so-and-so win? Oh, they were the best. Why, why, why? And the problem with that is that because the, the audience is not privy to the judging process. And, you know, you can't always get completely swept away with mm. a beautiful garment because mm. it's what's behind the essence of their understanding. And, you know, I don't really like the word scalability, but I'll use the word marketability yeah. more. Um, so that's what Could the, you produce it commercially? Yes. And the reason I don't really like scale is because I think scale is a double-edged sword. You know, if you get reach scale, you make more money, but then you also make more problem. Mm-hmm. And so it's about marketability and how to manufacture that in a sustainable way with a, with a waste stream that they can easily replicate and continue to find. The winner, Tess Whitford, I thought she was excellent. She was a clear winner because she did tick so many of these boxes that were very hard to tick. I can't express enough how hard it is to win this thing. But what Tess actually did was zero waste pattern cutting. And I have never seen the like. Zero waste pattern cutting, in my experience, and I'm no expert, but it's often quite simple. It's about squares, turning the squares on their sides, blah, blah. Mm. Tess made a massive jigsaw puzzle and it was so complicated. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same with zero waste. I'm not, you know, it's all a bit um, boxy, as you said, and I've never really loved it. You know, obviously, we always talk about the, f- the fact that design needs to come first. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's, just... it's too boring. It's like, yeah. it's a kimono. Yes, I, I feel that way a little bit with zero waste. Um, but I was convinced by Tess. The other thing that Tess did, which I thought was very clever, and one of the other reasons that she won, is that it wasn't just the pans. The fabrics had all been considered. The paints were eco-friendly. She used linen, which is able to be grown with very few pesticides and is a much more environmentally friendly process than conventionally grown cotton. Hers was organic. She thought about all of it, even her hardware. Did you see what that was? I know she got them from a... You tell me. I think she'd been to the hardware store and bought some broken bits of old, I don't know, bits of old metal. I mean, she's a punk, so she had bought these old, unusable bits of, I don't know, grotty pins and bolts and then sewn them on. (laughs) But it looked good. Yeah, no, I think also she's a delightful character, as they all are. I get very inspired by the determination and the resolve to do something better. Will, who used bark to create a lace effect, how clever was that? And he'd actually got upcycled old bridal wear, so he'd used the organza and the silks, and then hand appliqued this essentially lace that was made from bark waste. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, Will from Taiwan, he put, I mean, they all put a lot of time in, but his was exceptional, the textures. And, you know, he'd really put his soul into that collection. Oh, they all did. It breaks my heart they didn't all win. They should have. We're going to share some pictures and links, and we'll show you each of the finalist collections because the pictures are fantastic, Mm. and it's really inspiring stuff, Mm. isn't it? Definitely. The first prize winner gets to design for the R Collective. That's your brand that you started in 2017 as a social enterprise, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
social impact brand, social enterprise. After 11 years of running Redress and talking about the positive power of fashion and all this waste and all this talent, all this innovation and all these amazing supply chains and not really seeing anything really happen, we got fed up with that. So we said we're going to start it ourselves, which was a brave decision, actually. It was quite a scary one. So um, we'd been working on it for a few years, really, but we launched it last year called the R Collective. And the idea behind it, what it is, it's an upcycled social impact brand in collaboration with emerging design talent. So you're always working with a different designer? You're not doing it at home? No, we are now also doing it in-house. You are not doing it just at home on the couch? (laughs) (laughs) I said that in a weird way. knitting needles. (laughs) No, no, we have... But you have a design team in-house? We have our in-house design team now, and then the young designers join our team. So at the moment, we're working on our own in-house collection, which is a capsule, a timeless, essential capsule, upcycled. It's got zero waste. It'll have a little reconstruction with, you know, the best consumer care advice and instructions and marketing that we can possibly deliver. And then around that, all of these young designers and the winners of the Redress Design Award come and they create more, more characterful capsules that reflects their strength because until we do the runway and until we see who wins we don't know what we're going to get yeah and that makes it very difficult for a brand because you know last year we had a knitwear designer so then we had to go i loved fi- it london-based remind me of her name kate. kate kate morris i mean she was absolutely exceptional but what's the brand called her brand her brand is called crop crop uk yeah and very beautiful and clever quite simple no, she's an exceptional woman, Kate. I'm really a ma- major fan of hers. But the point around the R Collective is that, you know, so we had a knitwear designer, so then we do a knitwear collection. And then we had um, Leah Kassif from Israel, and her sort of DNA is military. So then we did a military one. And then the guys before, Kevin and Victor, we created classic blazers. And so now we're going zero waste. Mm. And I don't know how punk we're going. <laughs> but the challenge with that is is identifying the R Collective brand. So really we're just, we're bedding into this brand, bedding into our customer. And then these designers need to bend with us a little bit to ensure that we're really holding that brand together. Let's talk about other alumni because actually some incredible people have won the Redress Award. Mm. Kevin Germanier. Mm -hmm. I discovered him through Redress, Mm -hmm. but now I know what he does. I mean, he's he's on a skyrocket to success. Redress Bjork. I know. Um, and he's selling in matches fashion now with his upcycled Swarovski crystals. And Amazing. I mean, the beauty of embellishments, I'd have to say, um, is that you can get an old pair of jeans, an old crusty pair of jeans, and of which there are gadillions. You probably got some when you were a dumpster diver. <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. Fabulous jeans. I mean, the best place to get jeans is definitely secondhand, for obvious reasons, because they come Wearing out. some right now? Yeah, much better. But um, the beauty of embellishment, and I'm not talking about Kevin's strategy and his partnership with Swarovski per se right now, embellishments is a great way to upcycle because it gives a different feel, an upscaled version of an old pair of jeans. So I like that. Let's talk about that word upcycling. Sometimes it has kind of homey connotations. Mm. It's a bit... You know that old way that we looked at sustainable fashion as being a bit oatmeal and a bit worthy and a bit drab, mm-hmm. even though it isn't? Mm-hmm. I think upcycle is one of those words that still carries those connotations for some. Mm-hmm. You've got Kevin, high glamour. Yeah, I think, to be honest, you, maybe you're talking to the wrong person because I see upcycling and I see it as being a very high-scale 
design-driven and aspirational thing. I see upcycle, I want to know what it is because it's a polar opposite to mass market. And so for me, that is quite a luxury proposition. Good, actually. yeah. Yeah, so I like that very much. I think some people poo-poo upcycling because they're masters to scale. You know, and if you want to be a slave to scale, let's put it that way, then upcycling might seem at odds with scale. And I don't agree with that, and I want to prove it wrong. I do believe that upcycling can be done in a scaled-up version if you are a scale person. So, for example, what I really want to see happen is the upcycling of, let's just say, 20,000 damaged T-shirts into 20,000 gorgeous printed T-shirts in the mass market. And that is upcycling because, hello, hello, the bad news is there are certainly brands that have got more than 20,000 T-shirts sitting in a warehouse somewhere. We are recording this just as news broke that Burberry had committed to not destroying any further unsold stock Listeners will be very aware of this, I'm going to say scandal, because it was, and how social media jumped on this, because it was revealed in Burberry's annual report or quarterly report how much they'd destroyed. We know that, well, you and I know, but I don't think the broader public necessarily does know. This isn't just Burberry. Brands destroy stock all the time. Mm. All brands do it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it it didn't surprise me at all which is sad, I suppose, and I'm, I kind of find it a bit weird that people were so surprised. And that's perhaps because people haven't thought about it for long enough. Um, but I'd like to say that unfortunately, many, 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 many brands do it. And it's so every day that I don't know what all the fuss was about. I'm people shocked. don't know. Because people, yeah, they just don't they know. They don't know. And of and course people are shocked because it's profligate wastefulness and it's sort of immoral, isn't it? But everyone does it. And I yes, just, I take issue to pointing the finger at Burberry, particularly um, because everyone does it. Yeah. But I'm glad they've now said that they won't do it, I suppose. No, no, but do you know what I'm actually ups- shocked about? I'm shocked about the amount of uproar about it because that shows how little everybody knows about what is going on. Yeah. And that's why I'm shocked. Yeah. So why is it that we think, oh, we know because we're in the industry. Of course, no one else will know. Everyone should know if we talk about transparency being key. You know what? There's a pecking order of what you want to know. And right now, you know, we've gone from transparency in the supply chain and obviously the Rana Plaza stimulating the whole transparency debate. And then waste has been bubbling on the back burner for a very, very long time. And now waste is on the chopping board. Because now people think, okay, so we understand transparency, supply chains, you must do this brands, you've got to do that brands, you've got to, and now you're telling me you're wasting all that stuff. Now we have an issue with that. Bring it back to the Redress Awards. One of the excellent finalists, Jessie Lee, used umbrellas mm. to make an amazing coat. And then mm. we learned, I hadn't thought of it, it's pretty obvious when it is told to you, umbrellas are wasted often. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, so sometimes... In the past, but I have changed. I would see like umbrellas. Oh, why do we have to use umbrellas? And then people would use bed sheets. Oh, why are people using bed sheets? That's me being stupid. In the competition. Yeah, because I particularly. I thought you meant why do people have to use umbrellas? Oh, and I was like, it... my mum says that. She goes, you're not going to melt. Just go outside. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I used to always think like, for example, why do people bring bed sheets into the competition? Because it makes us feel a bit crafty, and we're trying to like, attract the whole fashion world. And here we have bed sheets going down the runway. It doesn't sound very good. It sounds really, you know. But I have changed luckily and it was the umbrella jacket yesterday that actually changed really my mind but the ingenuity of bringing waste streams into fashion so his jacket i love it it was very sophisticated i would wear it 
but it's also this product that is made incredibly cheaply. If you get caught in the rain, as I did actually last time I was on a trip to New York and I hadn't packed mm. one, and it was yeah. just pissing down every day, and yeah. I bought the best umbrella I could find, and yeah. it was horrible. Yeah. You know, $10, worst umbrella, but the best one I could find. One was $3, yeah. and it broke in five minutes. Yeah, so and think, then I put it yeah. in the bin. Because you can, I mean, it might either that you poke your eye out or it breaks. And it, I just, what else do you do? Take it home, broken yeah. umbrella. Yeah. No, I was impressed with the umbrella jacket. But it just goes to show that the waste streams, and I know that's how you think, there are so many of them. It's not just dead stock end roll t shirts that are the wrong colour. I mean, it's everywhere. When you start looking at textiles, and maybe if listeners are there, like, look around you and see how many textiles there are just in this immediate room. Textiles are everywhere. Carpets. Yeah. Curtains. Sofas, curtains. All that cars. stuff. Even the inside of your cars are made out of textiles, but you don't want to upcycle those. But, so when we talk about the fashion industry and clothing and textile waste, those stats often make it very specific clothing and textile waste. It's not just fashion. It's our whole lives, our upholstered lives, wherever you look, well, it, right? To be fair, it depends which stats you're looking at. So, for example, if you're looking at Hong Kong landfill stats, they will say 343 tonnes of textiles go into our landfills, and that includes industrial textiles and textiles coming from hotels. So that could be your bed sheets and your curtains and carpets and, you know, industrial renovation projects from houses. So textiles are not always just clothes, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. What do we do? I mean, when I start to think about it, and I'm always counselling against the overwhelm, start at home, start with what you know, you can change things. I do fundamentally believe that. But when I get too bogged down in the enormity of the stats and that idea of bloody everything, <laughs> and I start freaking out. How do you not freak out? Oh, I do freak out. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's natural. No, I freak out because I do think that we have to do so much more. And I, I don't like to harp on about like, every little bit you do it does make a difference and blah, 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 blah. And it does make a difference, but like, we've got to get on with it. And that's what freaks me out. You know, if you look at the 87% of clothes end up at landfill, I think that's just disgusting. I mean, come on. Mm. That is revolting. Mm. What the hell's wrong with us? I know. So I get angry, actually. Yeah, frustration. Yeah. But, you know, you mustn't let it beat you. So you've got to st- keep staying positive and keep thinking to yourself, you know what keeps me going? I actually think, I mean, many things really, when I, when I say, come on, Christina, pull your socks up and stop moaning, there are a few things, and I think I do genuinely believe that educating designers is the way to steer us out of this, but it's going to take a long time. But if it weren't for those young designers, I would be feeling quite blue. But because of them, I'm Completely feeling... different approach. Yeah, but they are... The but next... they have a completely different approach. 100%. They just wouldn't carry on like we yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. So you need to give them another 15 years, and they will be running the companies... So you hang on everyone, it's gonna happen, it will happen. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. 
Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. 